Thanks, Chu. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word now, we ask that you'll give us the same heart that we see in Abraham, a heart that's willing to hear your voice and to obey. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, this is the third in our series in uh, Christ in all the scriptures uh, and uh, really we're just seeing three examples over three weeks of how we see Christ promised and patterned and present in the scriptures and I, I trust that as, as we, we're doing this uh, you will be Uh, hearing the principles and seeing the principles that I'm applying so that as you read other passages through the Old Testament uh, that you're able to do the same thing and see Christ as you read. So how do we see Christ promised, patterned and present in this chapter, Genesis 22? Well, I trust that you're able to identify the verse in our passage that contained the promise of Christ. There in verses 17 and 18, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now in that promise there's a corporate dimension in that your offspring will be multiplied as many as the stars and the sand uh, but there's also a singular dimension in that he seems to speak of one offspring who will possess the gate of his enemies. Now the key reason that we can say that this is a promise of Christ isn't just because we work it out ourselves but because we're actually told in the New Testament that this promise given to Abraham is speaking of Christ. Uh, Particularly Galatians chapter 3 verses 15 to 29. And uh, what we're going to do is we'll we'll look through that passage uh, step by step to see how it applies this promise to Abraham, uh, to Jesus. Uh, So if you have a Bible there, it might be helpful for you to have it open before you, but I'll also have have it up on the screen. Now we should note that Genesis 22 is one of many times that this promise was repeated to Abraham through his life. Each time it's promised there's a little slight different nuance or something that's added uh, to understand the promise. Uh, So when Paul references this promise in Galatians chapter 3, Uh, He's not necessarily directly quoting this time or any particular time. Uh, He's speaking of the promise in general because every time the promise is given, no matter how it's presented differently, there's always a reference to Abraham's offspring. So Galatians 3.15 says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it, once it has been ratified. Now this is the nature of a covenant. 
in contrast to a contract. Covenant is permanent. It's binding on the members of the covenant until death. And we see this in a marriage covenant, don't we? Each person makes their promises and they say, until we are separated by death. It's because the foundation of a covenant is promises, whereas the foundation of a contract is conditions. So a contract can be annulled or it can be changed if one of the parties breaks one of the conditions or if they both decide to come to a different arrangement. But because a covenant is based on what I promise to do for another person, then it continues to stand, even if that person doesn't keep their promises to me. So, uh, Paul here is saying that's what we're used to in man-made covenants, the permanency. So, if man-made covenants have permanency, how much more does God's covenant with us? So he goes on and says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So we have it there very clearly. The promise was in reference to Christ. God made a covenant with Abraham through this promise, and because the promise also involved the offspring, then the covenant was also with the offspring. So Israel knew that because they were Abraham's children, they were heirs of the promise through Isaac and then through Jacob. But Paul picks up on the the grammar of the original text. The word for offspring here is not in the plural, but it's in the singular This means that the promise is not just about the nation of Israel, but it's also about an individual person. The offspring of Eve that we saw promised in Genesis 3 will also now be the offspring of Abraham. Remember Genesis 3, the promised one would crush the serpent's head. And potentially it could have been anyone from the entire human race. But now it's narrowed down. Now it's going to be one who is from the descendants of Abraham. So continuing through Galatians 3, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to which the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So the point he's making here is the promise came before the law. Abraham preceded Moses by 430 years. 
So the promise still stands, even though the law was introduced many years later. An Israelite was to understand that they were in covenant relationship with God because of his promise to Abraham, not because of their adherence to the law. It wasn't their obedience that made them God's people. Rather, it was the fact that they were God's people that was to flow into their obedience. The moment anyone thought that the the basis of God's approval of them was on the basis of works of the law, then they made the covenant into a contract. Because the, the law on its own, without the promises, is a contractual thing. They they were to pursue the law by faith in the promise, not by how good they were at working it out. That's what Paul is getting at in verse 20 when he says an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. In a contract, uh, signatures are made by all of the parties involved. It's, It's an agreement that puts conditions on all of the parties and as I said anyone has the right to then annul the contract if they think the conditions haven't been kept by the other party but God's covenant with Abraham and his offspring was one-sided it was all of what God would do for Abraham and nothing of what Abraham needed to do for God in return In Genesis 15, when the covenant was actually made with Abraham, God got Abraham to prepare uh, animal sacrifices which involved cutting them in half and then laying them out in a line. In a covenant-making ceremony, the two parties involved would walk between the, the carcasses of the animals as they made their promises, as if to say... What's been done to these animals will happen to me if I do not keep my promise. So Abraham did as was instructed and then he waited to see what would happen. God put him into a deep sleep and paralysed him and he could do nothing except watch and listen as God made his promise. And then as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. So the covenant was with Abraham, but Abraham didn't even participate in the ceremony. That meant the fulfilment of these promises depend completely on God and not on Abraham. Now the law on its own wasn't like this. Uh, It contained all of the things that the Israelites were required to do if they were to live in the land and to be uh, fruitful and prosperous and healthy and uh, safe from all their enemies. There were blessings that came as a result of their obedience and there were curses that came as a result of their disobedience. So the law, in a sense, was a contractual system. It required more than one party to comply with the conditions if it was to be effective. Back to Galatians 3, Paul goes on. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? 
Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. What was the purpose of the law then? As we saw in the earlier section as well, it was to highlight sin, to show the absolute impossibility of anyone earning righteousness by their own character or actions. So it would be clear beyond a shadow of a doubt that the righteousness that God gives can only be a gift of grace alone, accomplished by the promised offspring, Jesus Christ, received by faith alone, not by works. To put it another another way, the primary role of the law is to show us our sin so we realise our failure we see our need for mercy and we turn and we flee to the cross of Christ in repentance and faith. And Paul goes on then to talk about faith. Now before faith came we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptised into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to the promise. So the law makes us slaves under the headship of a master and we are imprisoned. Our status is bound up under the law in what we do and we live in fear of punishment if we disobey. But the promise fulfilled in Christ makes us sons, children of God's family. Our status now is who we are in Christ, not what we do, not in our ethnicity or our gender or our social position. And instead of fear of punishment, we're motivated now by the love of the Father. And what that all means for us is summed up in 3 verse 29. You are Abraham's offspring, Heirs according to the promise. Because the singular dimension of the promise of the offspring has been fulfilled in the one man, Jesus Christ, that means that the corporate dimension of the promise, the stars in the sky, the sand on the seashore, that is now fulfilled in those who have faith in Christ from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. We are the great multitude that's more numerous than the stars and the sand on the sea. We are those from every nation now who have received the promised blessing through Abraham's offspring. So there's the promise of Christ. How do we see Jesus patterned? 
Well, I want to highlight two ways in which we see this. And there are, there are actually more than that, but we haven't got time to go through it all in detail. Firstly, we see him patterned in the ram that was sacrificed instead of Abraham's son. Did did Isaac deserve to be sacrificed? We might say, well, no, of course not. But then is there anyone who doesn't actually deserve the penalty of death for sin? Enshrined in Israel's law was a law, a, a principle of the redemption of the firstborn, which flowed out of the, the experience coming out of Egypt when the firstborn of every family died in Egypt. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when, you, when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontless between your eyes. For by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people, I'm not sure why I've got these extra verses. Um, I was supposed to finish at verse 16. Every Israelite parent knew that apart from the act of redeeming their firstborn, then their firstborn, representing their future, would be dead. So whenever they saw their still living firstborn son or daughter walking around, the one for whom they had sacrificed a lamb when they were born, they'd be reminded, apart from the Lord's mercy, we'd be nothing but objects of his wrath. So the ram provided by God was a confirmation to Abraham that Isaac's firstborn status wasn't his own doing. He could only keep his firstborn son because of the gift of God, of the ram. There was a substitutionary sacrifice made That saved Isaac. When John the Baptist declared about Jesus, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he was referring to the idea that began with this story of Abraham and Isaac. The words that Abraham spoke, 
Even though maybe as he spoke them he thought he was lying to his son. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. It was a prophetic word. Even if he didn't realise it at the time. The lamb killed on Mount Moriah, killed as a substitute, saved not only Isaac, but through saving Isaac, saved the whole people of Israel who came from him. Secondly, Isaac himself is a picture of Jesus, which then makes Abraham and his actions as a picture of the father giving his son. Let's see some of the parallels between Isaac and Jesus and between Abraham and the father. Some of them are similarities, but some of them are differences. So Isaac points us to Jesus by how he is like Jesus, but also in some ways how he is different to him. So remember how God had said to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love. That's the exact same language that's used of Jesus when he's spoken of in the New Testament. The one and only The father said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. John 3.16, God so loved that he gave his only son. Now if we know anything about the story of Abraham, we might at this point say, hang on, what about Ishmael? Isaac wasn't Abraham's only son. Well, not according to the flesh, that is. But according to the promise, he was. Isaac was the the son who was miraculously born by Sarah, just as God had said it would happen, even though, humanly speaking, it was impossible. The promise would go through Isaac to Jacob, and only then would it broaden out to apply to the great nation uh, formed out of the twelve sons of Jacob. So the only son aspect of this command is more doubly is made doubly serious here. Not only would the sacrifice cut off the potential physical descendants of Isaac, but it would also bring it to an end the promise. The promise that as we've heard was supposed to be permanent, never to be annulled, never to be changed, yet the one through whom the promise is to go is about to die. That's how the disciples felt when Jesus was in the tomb and they'd forgotten his promise that he would rise again. Remember what they said to the the stranger as they walked along the road? Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. 
Can you sense the, the despair there? It's all past tense. We've, we'd hoped he was a prophet. We hoped he was going to be the redeemer. But it's all come to nothing. Where are God's promises now? Yet even at that point, they'd heard reports that some women had encountered angels telling them that Jesus was alive and they were unsure whether to believe them or not. The future of the entire universe pivoted on that one weekend. If Jesus remained in the grave, then not only creation itself but God himself would be undone because all of his promises would have come to nothing. But because Jesus, the new and better Isaac, because he was raised from death, the promises have been confirmed and established and shown to be unshakable. There are some other parallels between Isaac and Jesus, both in similarities and in contrasts. Isaac goes to the place of sacrifice carrying the wood for the fire with his father. But he's unaware of his father's intentions and he asks, my father, where is the lamb for sacrifice? That's got to be one of the most gut-wrenching questions in the whole of the Bible. A son innocently questions his father, whom he trusts implicitly, unaware of what his father's intentions are, unaware of the turmoil that Abraham himself would have known in his own heart as he came out with an answer. Well, Jesus also walks to the place of sacrifice carrying the wood of his own cross in loving obedience to his father. But the difference is he's fully aware of the father's intentions. He knows himself to be the Lamb of God and that he says with a full knowledge of what he's facing, Abba, Father, my Father, not my will but yours be done. Isaac's life is saved at the last minute by a sacrifice, the ram caught in the thorns. Jesus saves us by being that substitute. There are thorns there too, aren't there? But the thorns are pressed onto his head. He becomes the ram caught in the thorns. When people call on him to save himself at the last minute, like Isaac was, he remains on the cross. Let's think about Abraham. Abraham goes knowing God's reliability in keeping his promise through Isaac. And so he reasons that God would have to raise Isaac from the dead. We're told in Hebrews 11, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, the promise. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Well, Jesus isn't figuratively raised, he is literally raised from the dead. 
And this was always the Father's plan. So now we know that every promise that the Father has made is yes in him. And God says to Abraham, Now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son from your, so held your son, your only son, from me. So Abraham's actions were a confirmation of his faith, the proof that his faith was not dead because it had worked its way out in the fruit of obedience. So God said to Abraham, Now I know you fear God. Well, now we can say to God, Now I know that you have loved me, seeing that you have not withheld your only son from me. So the Father's actions are proof to us of his unfailing love, just as Abraham's actions were proof of his faith in God. That's what John 3.16 is about. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Love here is not so much God's motivation for giving as much as an indication of how great his love is. How much did God love the world? Well, we know it by looking at Jesus. How much does God love you? Look no further than Jesus. So Abraham's willingness to give his son is a picture of the father who willingly gives his son and seals his eternal covenant in him. Thirdly, then how do we see Christ actually present in the events of this story? By this time, Abraham was quite used to hearing God speak to him directly in Uh, various ways but in this instance the communication feels a lot more intimate this is only the second time that the Lord calls him by name Abraham and it's the first time we see Abraham verbalising his response here I am Abraham needs to know that God is very close to him if he's going to be able to receive the command that comes next, take your son and offer him. Then we're told in verse 11, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. Now, the double use of a name like this often signifies an incredibly significant moment. It also kind of heightens that closeness, that intimacy. God is calling his name twice. We see it a few times through the scriptures. For example, when Jacob was about to go to Egypt as an old man to see Joseph, whom he thought had died and, uh, Abraham, and 
Jacob is going to Egypt to save his family from the famine. We're told God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then when Moses was in the wilderness, about to be called to take the Israelites out of Egypt, we're told when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see the burning bush, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then when the boy boy Samuel was about to be called to be a prophet who would anoint the king of Israel, the Lord came and stood calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. You see the pattern that's happening here. When Jesus was talking to Peter just before he went to the cross, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Maybe Peter knew about this pattern in the Old Testament of the Lord using people's name twice and people responding by saying, here I am. When Paul is confronted by the risen Jesus on the road to Emmaus, falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? We could even include in this Jesus weeping over Jerusalem as he looked ahead to see her destruction. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Such life-changing moments required a more tangible, significant expression of God's presence. And here with Abraham, the double name is spoken by this mysterious figure, the angel of the Lord who called from heaven. In other words, right from the holy presence of God. So verse 1 had God speaking to Abraham and here where the communication is even more intimate, and significant with the double use of Abraham's name. It's the angel of the Lord, a messenger from God. But then the messenger speaks in the first person. He says, you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So this angel of the Lord is both a mediator between Abraham and God, and he is God. Does that sound a bit like John 1.1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. At this critical moment, when all of the patterns, all of the symbolism of the story are pointing to him, the Son himself steps into the story and takes charge. 
Isn't it interesting that Abraham didn't need to be told to take the ram to sacrifice in the place of Isaac? We're not actually told that he saw the angel of the Lord, he just heard the voice calling him from heaven and it's as if he then looks up to see if he can see some kind of visible manifestation of this voice that's called to him. But what does he see? He sees the ram and he instinctively knows this is the sacrifice that will save my son. Look at this interchange that Jesus had with some Jews. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. When did Abraham see Jesus' day? Well, surely it was this moment. Jesus is saying not only that he existed in time before Abraham, but he's deliberately using bad grammar here in saying, I am. It's a direct claim to be the Lord, the I am of the Old Testament. Abraham saw Jesus because he experienced the Lord speaking to him, directing him throughout his life, but also because in this unique way, the Lord, who is the Son, had revealed himself to him in this special way as the angel of the Lord. Now, just as last week... The application of all of this for us is the same. We must fix our eyes on Christ alone. He is the one to whom and for whom all history points. Studying history is becoming uh, less and less popular these days because uh, our culture tells us our identity isn't found in our history but in whatever we choose to make of ourselves and whatever we create in our own futures When uh, history is presented, it's often a revised or edited version that serves a particular ideological view or a political agenda. Clearly there is an agenda in the way that the Bible tells history because it's told in such a way that Christ always becomes the main focus and because he's not merely an idea or one character among many who's inserted into history. He's the one who gives all history meaning and therefore he's the only one who gives our lives meaning. Just as history is defined by how he fulfills the Father's eternal purposes, so our identity is defined by the reality of his presence in our lives and how The Holy Spirit is at work in us to transform us into the likeness of Jesus. It's only in Christ that we find, as we've been saying on Friday nights, find out where we fit within the grand picture of God's story. We don't fit God into the story of our lives. He brings us in 
to be included in his story by uniting us with Christ, united with him in his humanity, in his death and in his resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we have heard this story of the amazing truths that we can see in there of what you have done for us and for all peoples through your Son. We ask that you will open our eyes to see more and more of the glory of this Christ, of this beloved Son who was given for us and of your great love demonstrated in doing that. Father, our desire too is that we might know the same closeness and reality of Christ's presence in our lives that Abraham knew, particularly at that such a critical time when all of his faith was being tested. We ask that we might too know uh, your voice calling us by name, making us know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christ is with us, is walking with us, is in us and we are in him. So that we too might have the same faith that you gave Abraham, a faith that's willing to hear you speak and willing to act because we can trust you implicitly. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final hymn, In the Mountain of the Lord You Will Provide.